this is a pretty specific description. And we looked uh, over the last couple nights, Wednesday night and, and last night, we looked at, at the possibilities, and, and there's really only one group of people in the world that right now fit this description. And, and it's a group of people known as the Seventh Baptist Church, which you probably know since you're sitting here and you've been through some of these series. Well, this morning I want to look at that subject again, and I want to explore this testimony of Jesus thing. Now let's just read it again, Revelation 12, 17. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, we've studied that God has always had a remnant people. This isn't a new thing. It's not like the remnant just shows up at the end of time. There's always been a remnant. At every critical juncture in history, there's a group of people that are following God and that have a mission. In the days of the flood, he had Noah. In the days of Babylon arising, he had uh, Abraham called him out of Chaldea to a special mission. And as a result, he raised up a nation which followed after God, demonstrating the plan of salvation in the crossroads of the ancient world. That people was the people of Israel. When Ahab married a, a pagan queen named Jezebel, God called for a guy named Elijah. And, and 7,000, the Bible says, other people who never had bowed the knees to Baal, uh, a remnant, a group of people that would stay faithful even during a time of apostasy. And then you find that in the New Testament, the temple was declared desolate for the last time, and God raised up a New Testament church, the apostles and followers who followed him, or followed Jesus. Um, so the pattern of the last days, where God says that there's going to be a, a battle over worship, Follow the dragon or follow the lamb. And, and then he says there's going to be a remnant, a group of people that he's called for a mission, and that, that follow the lamb and, and keep his commandments. This is not a new thing. It's something that's consistent throughout all history. But I want to focus on that phrase, testimony of Jesus. If this group of people, this remnant, has the testimony of Jesus, we should probably know what it is. And now, um, when you read the Bible, uh, do you just... Read it and say, oh, I think this is what it means. Is that what we should be doing? No. Um, I, I've had quite a few different Bible studies with uh, a wide variety of people, and I've found uh, many times people will take the Bible and they will insert an idea that they already have in their mind and, and pass it off as though it is the idea the Bible is trying to communicate. And it's really, really easy to do. If you look at, at uh, people that, that uh, teach at seminaries and stuff, and are trying to teach pastors how to preach and how to study the Bible and stuff, they use a funny word for it. It's called isogesis. It means putting meaning into something. But what we really want to do is something that, that these theologians call exegesis, like pulling meaning out of something. So the simple way of saying it is instead of telling the Bible what we think it should be saying, we need to ask the Bible, what are you saying? And let the Bible tell us. Let's let the Bible be our interpreter. So if we're going to find out what the testimony of Jesus is, we need to let the Bible tell us what the testimony of Jesus is. So let me show you something interesting in Revelation chapters 19, verse 10. John has this overwhelming experience, and he sees this beautiful, bright, powerful angel, and he, and he says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? 
the spirit of prophecy. The Bible tells us exactly what it is. We don't have to guess. We, we can say this equals that because the Bible tells us that. The spirit of prophecy, or the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. But notice this, this phrase. He says, I am of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Now look in Revelation 22, 9, because John does something similar, and he shouldn't have. I don't know why he does, but he falls down, and he, he says, See that you do not do that, for I am of your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, right? It doesn't say it that way. It's Everything else is the same except for this one little thing is tweaked. And he says, I am of your brethren, the prophets. And so we see a parallelism here. The Bible is saying those who have the testimony of Jesus are prophets. And, of course, John was a prophet. And this angel, interestingly, is putting himself in the same position of a prophet of God. Now, follow me really carefully. These uh, parallel passages suggest something about God's church in the end of time. It suggests that, first of all, God's church has the testimony of Jesus, which means that God's church has a spirit of prophecy. And, uh, and I think there, there's something important about the fact that God's church has the gifts of the spirit. There's 1 Corinthians 1, 6 and 7 that says this, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you can come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants God's church, this group of people that follow him wherever he goes, to have every single gift of the Spirit. And why do you think that is? What's the purpose? What's the point of having all these gifts? The Bible says that the gifts of the Spirit are in order to help the church accomplish the mission God's given us, um, to, to help them finish and prepare, finish this work and prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about the world as God's vineyard or God's field, and he calls us workers. Anybody who says yes to Jesus, he says that you're one of my, one of my servants, one of my workers in my vineyard. And, and we have the opportunity of doing something alongside God. He says he's going to build his church, he's going to draw people to him, but he invites us to join him in that. And he, well, let's just say this, we can't. We are messed up, broken human beings. Sorry if you don't think that about yourself, but if you've never heard this before, you're a broken human being. you got problems. Every one of us does. There's not a single one in this room or anywhere else in the world that doesn't have an issue because we are broken by sin. And we, we not only don't have the skills, but we don't, we don't have uh, there, there's nothing in us that will commit us to God as his servants, as, as capable of taking the gospel of the world. And so when he saves us, he does something. He gives us gifts. And those gifts are a wide variety of gifts. Look at this in Ephesians 4, 7, 8. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he did what? He gave gifts to men. Specifically, he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit, who he said would give us all the other gifts that we need to take the gospel to the world. The Bible teaches that every single believer has been given at least one of these special gifts from the Holy Spirit. It says that when we're baptized, in Acts chapter 2, um, the Peter says that, that uh, we should repent and be baptized every one of you, and then he promises this, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, these gifts will be part of that, um, uh, that gift. Or at least uh, the Holy Spirit is part of that gift. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 describe this. My little clicker thing is, is working. There we go. 
He said, and he himself gave some to the some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. How many of you feel like you're in that category? Just raise your hand. Any any uh, any evangelists here? Prophet? Um, sometimes we look at those lists and we're like, oh, that could be me. Um, pastors, teachers. I mean, all of these sound like they are upfront, public kind of, of roles. Um, how many of you want to preach next Sabbath? Just raise your hand. <laughs> no? Oh, we've got, we've got one volunteer. Most of us don't feel like those are God's gifts for us. Now, some of us, maybe you recognize God has given you the gift of teaching. Uh, but there's others. Um, there's as many gifts as you can imagine. There's, there's gifts of discernment and hospitality, helping hands, right? The, the kind of, I'd like to help with that kind of, of, of uh, attitude is a gift from the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of gifts the Bible describes. But notice what it says the reason for these gifts are. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, according to the Bible, why did God give us gifts? Yeah, to build up the church and to do the mission of taking the gospel to the world. You and I are not supposed to be spectators. We're not supposed to be sitting on the side watching the pastor, whoever that is, um, do the work of the church, right? We're not supposed to be sitting on the side waiting for you know some some professional that we pay to, to do the work, um, and and then we, we clap and we say, well done. God has invited each of us into the church, and Peter describes the church, each one of us in the church as well as rocks, which doesn't sound very nice, but but he's describing it as though we're we're each one a part of the building of God. Now the church isn't about the, the wood and shingles on a, a building, not about pews or carpet or anything. The church is, is the body of Christians, the group of people, which means that it doesn't matter whether you're meeting here or you know, in a block church or in a storefront or in, the, in, in a uh, household. The point is that God's people are getting together to follow him, to worship him, to grow together, and to take the gospel to the world. That's the, the church. And so when we're in that body, in that group of people, he says we're part of the building. Each one of us has a purpose and a role. Let me show you another list, because there's lists of it about these gifts all throughout the, the New Testament. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. You ever found somebody that they just are able to communicate good advice in a, a diplomatic way that, that makes you want to follow it? That word of wisdom there's a, a verse in, in uh, I believe it's Proverbs, that says that there is wisdom in the hoary head. This means, you know, like hoar frost, the, the little white frost on the ground. There's wisdom in gray hairs. How many of you that have gray hairs feel wise? <laughs> God has given you a, an experience in life. You hit your head against enough walls that you can tell us where they are. And, and we need that. We need wisdom. That's a gift from the Holy Spirit. Um, or this one, the, the word of knowledge. Some people are deep students of, of the Bible, of, of, uh, of the world. They understand what's going on. And uh, not every one of us has that gift. And it's good for us to bump shoulders with people who are more knowledgeable than us. And he, it keeps going. Um, to another faith by the same spirit. Oh, man. There's, there's a, a gift of faith for everyone. The Bible says that God has given each of us a measure of faith. But there are some people, like 
um, George Mueller, that just seem to be able to break down the walls of heaven and get God to do stuff the rest of us can't. Um, now, <laughs> God is not different from Mueller or from me, but, but there are some people that have a gift of faith. Um, and then there's the gift of healing. We have some medical professionals in our, in our communities that God has given you the gift of healing. There's, now, obviously, there's some people that have laid hands on somebody or done a, uh, a prayer over somebody, and God has miraculously healed them. And I think that that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, too. Uh, but but our, our actual doctors and nurses and other medical professionals, God has given them a gift to take healing into people's lives. And I believe that's by the Holy Spirit as well. And then this one says, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, uh, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually. And, and what's that last three words? As he wills. Now this means, some people like to suggest that uh, the Holy Spirit gives um, a specific gift to everybody, and it is the thing that, that it determines whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each one according to his desire, according to what he sees fit. Which means that one person might have wisdom, another person might have a different gift, like evangelism or teaching. Not everybody's going to have the same gift. And, and no, these aren't the tests of the Spirit. The Bible says that the way we know we have the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is growing in our lives. Things like peace and love and joy and kindness and patience, everybody should be having those things. That's the growing Christian experience. And when we have the Holy Spirit, He promises that our, that fruit will grow out of us. But then He gives us gifts according to His will for the edification of the church, for the work of ministry. I want you to notice that this uh, gift of prophecy has been mentioned in, in each of the, the lists that we've described. And, and you'll find it in every single list of, of the gifts of the Spirit, you'll find this gift of prophecy. Other gifts are mentioned or not, but this one is mentioned every single time. And <laughs> to be honest with you, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Because I've had a few people come up to me and tell me that they have a message for me from the Lord, and uh, and then they start talking, and it's like we've just entered the twilight zone, and they start talking about some really weird stuff. <laughs> the whole gift of prophecy thing, it, it's, it weirds me out just a little bit. And it should, it should make us question. Notice this, Joel 2.28 says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And Joel mentions that before Jesus' second coming, we should expect to see the gift of prophecy poured out on this church. Which is exciting and a little bit scary because there's all kinds of people that think that they've got a message from God. And how do we know? How do we know if it's actually true? But even though there is a potential for problems, according to the Bible, I need to accept that it's true, that there is the possibility of somebody having a gift of prophecy. But the Bible says in Matthew 24, 24, this is actually Jesus saying this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, which means that there's going to be a true Christ, the second coming is going to happen, and there's going to be true prophets. 
But we need to watch out because they're going to show great signs and wonders to deceive, which means that we can't just rely on miraculous things. Just because somebody works a miracle doesn't mean that they're sent from God. And if that's true, then how do we know what's true? How do we know what's a good prophet, what's a bad prophet, what's um, one that's leading us to Christ and one that's not? Um, everything needs to be checked by the Word of God. If, there's, if the Bible isn't our guide, then we're going to be led astray. We're going to be deceived by our senses or by our intuition or by somebody else's uh, uh, endorsement or whatever. But the Bible says we need to not quench the Spirit. Don't try to, don't try to keep people from following the gifts of the Spirit. Um, don't despise prophecies. But test all things and hold fast to what is good. Don't despise it, but test. You and I are not supposed to reject prophecy out of hand. We're supposed to recognize that it might be the right thing. And then do what the Bereans did. Go back and see if it is so. Go back and study for yourself to make sure. How do you test it? How do you test The first one is predictive accuracy. The Bible gives us some specific things that we can know. This is a prophet or that's not. And the first one is predictive, um, uh, predictive accuracy. Do you think that God makes mistakes? I've never known him to be wrong about something. And we've studied prophecy for quite some time now, and we've found that one after the other, God's prophecies have been fulfilled. Guaranteed, if God says it, it's going to happen. Now, if you have somebody who says something and it doesn't happen, then you can know that prophet is not talking about God's word. He was not, or she was not led by God. That isn't true. And then in Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So God simply, he doesn't make mistakes. A real prophet is going to get things right. When a real prophet says this is going to happen, then that is going to happen. But you got to keep in mind, there is one exception to this rule, and that is conditional prophecy. You remember the prophet Jonah? The Bible tells us he's a prophet. The Bible tells us he was sent by God. The Bible tells us he didn't want to go. He went and he, he ended up in the belly of the whale because he was running away from God. And then God has the whale spit him out, um, and, and he ends up going to Nineveh anyway. And against his, uh, well, he just doesn't want to do it, but he does it anyway. He preaches and he tells them that judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. But he doesn't do it just like that. He says, if you don't repent, then the city will be destroyed by fire. If you don't repent. And this is a condition. And what happens in Nineveh? They repent. And, and so Jonah sits up there watching, hoping that the fire is going to come down, and it doesn't. And he's mad. He's mad because it was a condition of prophecy. And God said, if then. But they changed. They repented. And so there was a then. There was no judgment. And so there are conditional prophecies. We need to watch for those. Um, but, but if it's not a conditional prophecy, if it's, this will happen, then it needs to come true in order for that person to be a true prophet. So let's just apply this principle to one of the most famous prophets in modern history, a guy named Nostradamus. Nostradamus is said, he's a French prophet on a self-proclaimed prophet. He's said to have had about 449 major prophecies. And, and according to people who've studied all these prophecies and tried to compare them with history and stuff, they found that 
only 18 of them were wrong, which is really good. Yeah, that's a really good record. Out of 449, only 18 of them were wrong. Except that 390 of those 449 don't seem to connect with anything, any events in, in all of history. And so we, we don't have anything to compare them to. Was he right? Was he wrong? Eh, you kind of just set those aside, wipe them off the table. So if that's true, then uh, he only had about a 9% accuracy. Do you think that God's prophet would, would be at 9% accuracy? Probably not. They, they need to bump it up a little bit. Maybe, maybe you could go as high as, uh, say, Gene Dixon, who some people say was, was 30 to 60% accurate in her predictions. That's pretty good. You can, you can bank on that one, can't you? <laughs> um, and, and then you've got people like Edward Case. They called him the sleeping prophets. Um, but uh, he was only said to be right about 40% of the time. Is God going to be right 40% of the time? No, 100%. It's 100% or nothing. All or nothing is what we need for a prophet. You're either a prophet or you ain't. So, um, last year, uh, a lady, uh, well-known, very influential, very smart lady, I'm sure, named Kim Kardashian West, um, she shared an extract from a book that was printed in 2008 uh, by Sylvia Brown, who happened to die shortly after that. So um, Sylvia Brown's no longer with us, and she wrote this book in 2008, and Kim Kardashian West was reading through it and found a, found a little prediction, took a snapshot of it, posted it on her Twitter feed, and this is what it said. She said that there was going to be a severe pneumonia-like illness that would spread throughout the world, and, and it's as if... Sylvia Brown knew the future, because in 2020, we had a pneumonia-like illness that spread throughout the world. Um, but notice what she says. She says that it will attack the lungs, the bronchial tubes, resist all known treatments. And, uh, and it kind of did for a while, uh, but we've got treatments now. But then she, she made some interesting statements. She said that it was just going to disappear. Well, that didn't really happen. Um, and, uh, and, and then she said that it's going to come back in another 10 years. Well, okay. The reality is, anybody could have predicted this, because there's pneumonia-like illnesses that spread around the world every every spring, they're called the flu. So, um, is this a big surprise that we would have this? No, not a big surprise. Did she get it all right? No, she didn't get it all right. And, and if you keep reading, in 2004, when Amanda Berry was kidnapped, you might remember the, the headlines about that, she told Amanda's mother on live TV that Amanda was not alive anymore. Amanda's mom died two years after that TV interview, but in 2013, nine years later, Amanda was found alive. Sylvia Brown? Wrong. Completely wrong. She claimed that people would have microchips in their brains by 2014 that would control epilepsy and schizophrenia, and she claimed that by 2020 that uh, it would be common for women to give birth in, in gravity-rigged birthing chambers. Anybody ready to give birth? Well, that was last year, so it doesn't count. No, I think she got that one wrong, too. What is a gravity big birthing chamber anyway? Anyway, so it's pretty clear that, that most people who claim to be a prophet just aren't. And, and it's because they make predictions that just don't come true. So test number one, if they make predictions, they need to be accurate. The second test is that it needs to have biblical fidelity. They need to actually agree with God's word. 
If God were to give somebody a message in our day and that message really comes from God, then it has to agree with the Bible. If it doesn't agree with the Bible, it's not a message from God. Plain and simple. Even if it comes true, even if they have a predicted accuracy and they disagree with the Bible, you can just write them off as a fraud because they are not a prophet of God. And here's what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 13. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, saying, let us go after other gods which, have, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. How do we know if something's true? We go back and look at the Bible. And I've said over and over and over again this last month, you got to read the whole thing. And it's not too difficult. It's not impossible for you to get to know the Bible, become fluent in it. Um, I think uh, quite a few of us here today have read the Bible more than once in our lives. It's not so huge of a book that you can't read it all. In fact, if you read the Bible just 15 minutes a day, you'll have read the entire Bible through in a year, if you're an average reader. So, if the so-called prophet disagrees with the Bible, then you know that their gift does not come from God. Even if that person does amazing things, even if they, all their predictions are 100% right, if it's not um, according to the Bible, or if it disparages the Bible, then it's wrong. Here's another Bible text in Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony. That's the, the, the um, first five books of the Bible and then the rest of the Bible. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them? There's a wee bit of light in them. I mean, come on, guys. There's, there's always a little bit of light in darkness, don't you think? You can find truth anywhere. I mean, you can just open up the books of, of the, uh, the Quran and, and you'll find truth in there, won't you? And then if you open up the, the, the writings of uh, any Hindu scholar, surely there's some nuggets of truth that you can pull out of there, don't you think? The Bible says, no. If it does not speak according to God's word, then there is no light in it. The devil loves to mix things together, a little bit of error with some truth, so that we will take the truth and eat the error with it. You've heard the illustration about making brownies, right? But brownies, they're grapes, right? And, and they're dark. Um, you put some flour, and you put some chocolate, and you put a little bit of dung in there, you know, some cow dung, <laughs> or maybe from your dog. Um, you know, you pick those up and you take them on a walk. Just no big deal. Just a little bit, not a lot. And, and you bake them up. I'm sure it tastes delicious, don't you think? No, the Bible says if it's not according to this word, if it's got darkness in it, if it's got lies in it, if it's got dung in it, there's no light in it. It's all bad. That's what the Bible tells us. So we just need to be careful. Let's follow what the Bible says. If it doesn't agree with God's word, then it is not from God. If it doesn't agree with God's law, then it's not from God. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that the genuine gift of prophecy won't even be among people who do not keep God's law. In Lamentations 2.9, um, it talks about this experience where they are disobeying God, but then it says this, the law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. God does not reveal himself to people who are not following his law. There's a, a situation that actually happens in the time of King Saul. He's the first king of Israel, and he has stopped obeying God. And you know what happens? The prophet Samuel, he leaves. He, he doesn't interact with Saul. Samuel ends up dying, and, and there's no prophet to replace him. 
And so Saul resorts to going to a medium, some lady who's uh, trying to talk with dead people in some cave in a mountain. He goes to this medium, and, and it's right after that, following her advice, he finds himself shot on a battlefield. And in despair, because he thinks he's going to die anyway, he runs himself through and commits suicide. That's what happens when you listen to false prophets. A genuine prophet has, has to get it right. They have to make accurate predictions. They have to follow God's word, agree with the Bible. And the Bible says that they're going to receive instruction from God in dreams and visions. That means that no Ouija boards are allowed, no tea leaves, no, no crystal balls, no um, communicating with the dead. Right? We're not talking about tarot cards or palm reading. Um, the Bible says that God's going to reveal himself through dreams and visions. So if this prophet isn't having dreams and visions, if they're doing it some other way to try to get knowledge from God, then you know they're not a prophet. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Here, uh, Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. And then in Joel 2, we saw this already. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And, and this makes good sense. Think, think about it. If there is a channeler of the dead, or a tarot card reader, or a psychic reading some crystal ball, it's almost like the, the devil can, can get in there, insert some malware, or can, and then make sure the message is what he wants the message to be. But if God is revealing it in a dream, can the devil read your mind? No, he can't. And so it's, it's like divine encryption. You can't get malware in there. You can't get a problem, a virus, into the message when it's being communicated through a dream or a vision. God speaks directly to the mind. And so that brings us to our next point. If someone has a dream or a vision, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes they stop breathing. That might sound a little bit alarming, especially if the vision goes on for a half hour or for two hours. Can you, just, just curious, have you ever held your breath underwater? How long did you last? Anybody get up to 60 seconds? Raise your hand if you made 60 seconds. All right, get lots of 60 seconds. How about, how about say, 90 seconds? Anybody held their breath that long? Wow, we've got some amazing people in here. How about two minutes? Ooh, wow, that's impressive. Two minutes and 30 seconds? Nobody. Not a single person. I bet, I bet somebody's held their breath for three minutes. Somebody in the world. But this would be a really fantastic thing. They'd be, they'd be in the record books, right? Do, do you know um, what the longest is? Say that again. 16 minutes by Aaron David. 16 minutes of David Blaine? 16 minutes? Does he still have brain cells? <laughs> Just adjusting the camera there. So yeah, 16 minutes is a long time to have your your uh, oxygen depleted and to hold your breath. Most of us can't make it past a minute or two. And, and so if you have a vision and you're not breathing, do you think that there's some divine intervention going on? Look at Daniel chapter 10 verse 17, and you'll find this. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. When someone goes into vision, we should expect that uh, 
If we see them stop breathing, it's, it's a normal thing. Because Daniel had this experience. He didn't have any breath in him. And, and in this vision, he remained alive. He didn't die. It's impossible to counterfeit a vision where you stop breathing. Can you see why God would want to do that? You can't. You can't just manufacture a vision where you stop breathing. You can't fake it. Because if you try to fake that, you end up dying. So it has to be supernatural. It has to be something that, that comes from God. But then there's another one, supernatural strength. Uh, Daniel 10 verse 18 describes it this way. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. He had, been, he had fallen down. He, he said there was no strength left in me. He was flat on his, on his belly on the ground. And it says that this divine, or this uh, heavenly being touched his, uh, touched him, and he, he um, was strengthened, and he rose. It was like there was strength that came from outside his body. So there you have it. Five things. Predictive accuracy, biblical fidelity, dreams and vision, stops breathing, supernatural strength. Um, now, the last, the last uh, two there are more, not so much tests of a prophet, but more like um, things that we can expect to see um, in a prophet's experience. And, uh, and if we don't see those things, we should ask some questions and say, are, are you sure that, that this is a prophet? A real prophet is going to be right 100% of the time. They're going to agree with the Bible. They're going to have dreams and visions. They'll probably stop breathing during a vision. They'll probably, um, they may be accompanied with supernatural strength. And the question that we have to ask is, does this still happen? Sure, it happened in Daniel's day. Maybe Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these other guys. Maybe in the apostles, John and Paul and whatnot. But does it happen today? And uh, I think the, the Bible suggests we should expect that it would, right? We should expect that we can see this around. Now, if you look around, you'll find all kinds of interesting um, prophets that um, people that claim to be prophets or churches that claim to have prophets. Um, but I'm going to show you a story of somebody who, well, a prophet at a critical time in his history. Do you remember that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9? The prophecy that ended, began in 457 B.C. when, um, the, uh, when the decree came from the uh, Medo-Persian Empire to send the Israelites back to Jerusalem and allow them to build the temple and build the streets and the walls again. 457 B.C. is, is when it began. And then 2,300 prophetic days, or, or actual years later, it ends in 1844. So we find this, and, and the angel in Daniel chapter 8 and 9 said that the, the, um, this prophecy, at the end of that, it would be the time of the end. So right at this juncture, the time of the end is beginning, the 1260-year the, the period of the reign of the beast of Revelation 13 is ending, and uh, a lady named Ellen Parman was born in 1827. And if you look at this experience, she, she ends up uh, marrying a guy named James White, and uh, so we know her today as Ellen White as a result. Uh, the, the Smithsonian says that, uh, that this lady is one of the most, one of the 100 most influential Americans of all time. She had a significant contribution to, um, uh, to the American history. As a young girl, she gave her heart to Jesus in the Methodist gathering, um, a few years went by, and when she was 17, uh, people say that she had some remarkable experience. This really interesting thing happened during a prayer meeting. They were gathered around to pray, and people were praying, and then something happens to Ellen. And at first glance, it looks perfectly biblical. Uh, but the Bible tells us to test the gifts. 
to be sure that they're actually true. Um, so over the course of her lifetime, you can look at all these different things that happened. People say that she had some 2,000 um, experiences of visions during her lifetime. And, and you got to ask the question, was it the real thing? Was this the gift of prophecy? So let's put it to the test. The first, um, the first prophecy, or the first test, is predictive accuracy. And uh, I did just a little bit of a study, because every time you're going to have a prophet, you're going to have some people that are like, ooh, that's so cool, and then you're going to have some people that are going to point the finger and say, absolutely not, this is not true. And of course, Ellen White has her detractors as well. So I look online, and I'm like, what are some failed prophecies of Ellen White? I'm just curious because I want to know and I want to make sure, and uh, and so I'm exploring failed prophecies of Ellen White. Well, you know, this guy says here's seven failed prophecies. That one says there's 13 failed prophecies. You know, we like to do it in our our clickbait world right now. Um, so I, I I'm looking. Here's the seven, and I and I read the the thing that he says, and I go back and I find it where she had written it. I'm like, he took it out of context. That's not what she's saying at all. So that, that can't be a failed prophecy because um, he's just taking it out of context. Or, or this one. No, that's not what she said either. And, and what about that one? No, not that one either. And over and over and over again, I kept finding that nobody seems to be able to prove that she has a failed prophecy. So let me show you a few where it actually um, happens, unmistakably. In 1902, she warned people that San Francisco and Oakland were becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and that the Lord, well, she said it this way, San Francisco and Oakland are becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord will visit them in wrath. That was 1902. Well, what happens in 1906? Um, she had told people uh, before 1906 that she had seen buildings shaking like reeds in the wind and fires burning all over the city, and nobody, gave, nobody really thought much about what she said until... 1906, we see this, fire follows earthquake, part of city in ruins, um, and, and this huge earthquake wipes out a big chunk of San Francisco. Uh, to, to this day, that earthquake is ranked among the most devastating earthquakes of all time. More than 3,000 people died, 80% of the city was destroyed, and fires that started from the earthquake continued for, for days and days. Further back, if you go back to 1864, Ellen White said that something, well, she said something that most people laughed at when she said it. She said that tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. And why do people laugh at it? I mean, today, you and I would be like, sure, whatever, who cares? But back then, doctors, medical professionals were prescribing tobacco as a cure for lung diseases. All right, you got emphysema? Here's what you do. You smoke a pack a day. It'll be all good from then on. It sounds ridiculous to us today, but can you imagine a lady standing up to the medical, the medical professionals of her day and saying tobacco is a malignant uh, poison, a deceitful, uh, deceitful and a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind? She would have been thought of as a quack. You know, you, you've seen them. There's those, those people that think that they're doctors and they say things that uh, doctors don't agree with, and you just kind of look at them sideways and you say, well, okay. I'm just going to go do what the doctor says. And people thought the same thing back in her day. But what do we know today? It wasn't until 100 years later, in 1957, that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was a, a causative factor in lung cancer. 100 years it took them to figure this out. And Ellen White said it in, in the 1840s, 1860s. So how in the world did she know this? Now, just a tidbit about Ellen White. Um, when 
Ellen was in third grade, she ended up getting hit with a rock, and it caused some, um, probably a concussion that was fairly severe and kept her from going back to school for quite some time. And a lot of people in her day didn't pass the eighth grade anyway, but she only ended up getting a third grade education. And yet, with a third grade education, she was able to best uh, the, the, the best of medical professionals. How did she know? In 1906, she said that the x-ray is not the greatest blessing that some suppose it to be. If used unwisely, it may do much harm. Uh, there's a, there, there's a, a video series out about um, the lady and her husband who ended up discovering radioactivity and inventing the x-ray. And at the time, it was really cool, and all kinds of people were, were playing with it, literally playing with it. They would take it to, um, uh, to, to carnivals. People would pay a few cents to get their x-ray taken, and it was, this, it was this cool trick, because you could see your bones and stuff. Now, do you and I have a little bit of caution around the idea of radioactivity and x-rays? Because today, we know that, that they cause cancer, and so if you're going to get an x-ray, they're going to lay... Um, lead over you so the x-rays can't go through certain parts of your body and it's only going to be focused on that one area that they need to, to get a, an x-ray of. But we know that today, back then, they didn't. And for Ellen to say that there is harm in it was quite a surprise to many people. How did she know with this third grade education that radioactivity, something that people with doctorate degrees were studying, was harmful? How did she know? Well, in 1893, she described the electrical force of the brain. And back then, they didn't have a clue what she was talking about. Didn't make a bit of sense to them. But today, we know that the brain actually uses about 20 watts of electricity. With the amount of electricity that's coursing through your brain, you could power a, a 2400 lumen LED light bulb. That's a pretty bright light bulb. And, and you, could, you could power a, one of those electric trains. Think about that, powering electric train in your brain. She knew that the brain had electrical signals in it, and we didn't find that out for 50, 60 years after she said so. Does Ellen White pass the first test? Well, so far it would seem so. At one point she even stood up in a church in Michigan and predicted that the Civil War was going to happen. And she said some people in this congregation will die in that war, or you'll lose brothers or, or husbands in that war. And at the time, the people laughed because the, the sentiment for this growing rebellion in the South was that the, the North would quell the rebellion in just an afternoon or two. In fact, there's stories of people getting in their wagon to go see the first battle of the, the Civil War. They get in their wagon, bring their picnic, and they're going to clap as the Northern Army wins. And guess what happens? They don't get their picnics out. They throw everything back into their carriage, and they run the other direction. Because that's not what happened. And, and the, the war ends up being one of the most devastating wars in United States history. One of her books, called Education, was written quite a long time ago. I don't know exact date of publication, but it's in late 1800s, early 1900s, something like that. I think it's 1880s is my, my rough memory. And, uh, and so it's written a while back. And you would think that education science will have grown since then, right? Like you and I, we know more about education than anybody in the 1800s did. But, but Ellen White writes this, this amazing book about Christian education, about godly education. And a guy in Norway visits America, happens to be the minister of education for the country, 
And he, he bumps into this book while he's here in the United States, and this is back in the early 1900s, and, and he reads this book on, on, his, uh, on his visit to the U.S. And he takes that book back to Norway. He's so impressed by what he read that he designs the Norwegian education system around what Ellen White describes in the book of education. And even to this day, you see remnants in, in the Norwegian education system of what he designed back then because of what Ellen White had written. And if you, uh, if you go to Norway, you know their, their tests? They, they end up being better than ours. In, in the United States, our education system can't compare in excellence to the Norwegian education system. But in Norway, they don't do some of the stuff that we do. Uh, they're, they're not testing kids every single day. They test them, you know, once every few years. Um, they, they have tons of practical stuff and mixed in with their education system. I've got a friend who's from Norway, and he, when he describes it, he's like, can I go to school there? That sounds like fun. And, and it's based on what Ellen White describes in his book of education. But that's, that's honestly a little bit off the subject of predictive accuracy. So test number one, um, they have predictive accuracy. Um, the, and, and you can look all throughout the things that, that Ellen White's written. One time, um, a guy pointed to a prediction Ellen White made in 1862 about the Civil War, where she said this, England is studying whether it is best to take advantage of the present weak condition of our nation and venture to make war upon her. She fears, if she should commence war abroad, that she would be, um, that she would be weak at home. If England thinks it will pay, she will not hesitate a moment to improve her opportunities to exercise her power and humble our nation. When England does declare war, all nations will, will have an interest and have an, and have an interest of their own to serve, and there will be general war, general confusion. And he points to this prophecy that she just gave, and she said, look at that. She's a false prophet, because England never declared war during the Civil War. England did not fight against the United States. Well, that's true, but remember what we said about the exceptions? There are exceptions to predictive accuracy, and it's when it's a conditional prophecy. And I would argue this isn't even a prophecy at all. This is just a wise lady saying, looking at the signs of the signs and saying, I think England is over there sharpening her knives. And if she has an opportunity, she may declare war. And if she declares war, then it's going to be general confusion, and it's going to be chaos all over the world. She doesn't have to be a prophet to say that. Just any political prognosticator could have said that and been accurate. Um, but, but it's an if, not a when. And when, when she does say when England declares war, she's basing it on this if before. Basic English understanding interpretation would, would point you to that when being um, predicated on the if. If they choose, then there's a when. And if they don't choose, there will never be a when. So, even this one is not uh, is not suggesting that she's not a prophet. Her her prophecies are accurate. But the, the second test is biblical fidelity. Is it is Ellen White somebody who stands in place of the Bible? Does she say just ignore that little bit over there? The Bible says I've got something more important. I've got new lights. And. I would say it turns out she passes this test too. I, I don't know anybody who has tried harder than Ellen White to get people back to the Bible, to get people to study the Bible for themselves. And if you look at, at stuff she said, one time she says, cling to the Bible. 
as it reads, and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity, and obey the word, and not one of you will be lost. This is during a time when evolution was being adopted by churches, and people were questioning the validity of the Bible, questioning miracles, and questioning the historical record of the Bible. And she says, cling to the Bible as it reads. Throughout her entire lifetime, Ellen White pleaded with people to turn back to the Bible. Quit questioning it, she says. Quit criticizing it. Just believe what it says and start living it. That was her motto, her, her theme. And, and then she said here, there is need of return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and duty. She talked about the, the Bible as the great light from God. And, and she said that her role was simply to point us back to the light of God. At one point, somebody kept saying, Mrs. White says this, Mrs. White says that. And she told that man, rebuked him. And you can imagine her, she wasn't real tall, imagine her pointing her finger up at him and saying, Sir, don't quote Ellen White again, saying, Mrs. White says, or Mrs. White says that, until you have studied the word for yourself. She made it very clear. It's not about her. It's about God's revealed will in his Bible. Does she agree with the Bible? Yeah, she does. I, I would suggest this. She says, but don't you quote Sister White. Quote the Bible. Talk the Bible. It is full of meat, full of fatness. Carry it right all out in your life. This is what she recommends. Now, some people suggest that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a church about Ellen White. We were founded by Ellen White. Yeah, she was one of the early people in the church, sure. Um, that she was the leader in the church. Well, I mean, her husband was the president, but uh, she and him had a few arguments. He all didn't always agree with, well, he, he and her didn't always have the same uh, position on things, and they, they had some healthy disagreements and always came back to the Bible. And, uh, and when, whenever she said, James, the Lord has shown me, he said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> but, uh, but until the Lord has shown me message comes out, man, they, they were, they, he was not her lackey, let's just put it that way. And, and then when they say, well, well, we just base our prophecy, not our prophecies, but our, our uh, interpretations and doctrines on Ellen White. Oh, okay. Well, let's look at what the official position of the church is. The writings of Ellen White are not a substitute for Scripture. They cannot be placed on the same level. The Holy Scriptures stand alone, the unique standard by which her and all other writings must be judged and to which they must be subject. The Bible is the supreme standard. Seventh-day Adventists fully support the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible, as its own interpreter. I keep, I keep pointing this back to that, don't I? Read the whole Bible. Let's find out what the Bible says that means. The Bible as its own interpreter. And the Bible alone as the basis of all doctrine. I mean, we could go through every piece of scripture and everything that Ellen White ever taught, but that might take us a long time, so let's not. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you to, to study for yourself. Read something that she's written and see, does this match the Bible? And I'm going to say this. If it does match the Bible, cool. I, I think you'll find some really good insights. If it doesn't match the Bible, throw it out because it's a false prophet. Is that fair? I'm going to actually ask for a couple deacons to help me out with something. Downstairs in the, the room with all the literature, there's a couple boxes of these books called Happiness for Life. And if, if you could bring up those boxes and have them at the back door, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a book that Ellen White wrote. Uh, so, downstairs, couple boxes, happiness for life. Just bring them up, and by the time we're done, we'll have those for you. Uh, take the book home. Read it. See for yourself. 
Doesn't match up. It's one of the best explanations of salvation that I've ever seen. In fact, I gave it to somebody who's not a Seventh-day Adventist, and he read the book, and he texted me back, and he says, this is amazing. I'm going to keep this by my Bible. Can I get more copies? And then, and then he did a little bit of research and said, oh, um, my pastor said that Ellen White's a false prophet, and, uh, and so he, he said, I, don't, I actually don't want those copies anymore. And I thought to myself, what are the evidences? Let's look at the tests. Let's not despise prophecies according to the Bible, but let's test every spirit. And if it passes the test, well, then that's a good thing. God has given us a gift. If it doesn't pass the test, throw it out. Sure. So let's move on. Let's, we're going to handle these last three points all at once. Dreams and visions, stop reading, supernatural strength, they're all kind of the, in the same category of uh, not so much uh, proofs, but, but uh, evidence that God is doing something here. Um, and this was true of Ellen White. She didn't use crystal balls or tarot cards or tea leaves. She always had a dream or a vision from God. And sometimes interesting things took place. At one point, um, she, she had a vision, and she was dreaming this, uh, she, she would describe this vision, and she would talk a little bit during her vision. Not, not everyone, she wouldn't say everything that was going on, but sometimes she would talk. And this time she was talking and saying things, and um, she, was, she was standing there, this not very big girl, holding an 18-pound Bible. Uh, 18 pounds, it's not very heavy, right? How many of you can lift 18 pounds? Just raise your hand if you can lift 18 pounds. Everybody should be able to raise their hand, even the kids, right? Now take that and do that with one hand and, and put it um, up here. Now just hold your hand up there for a while. She held an 18-pound Bible there for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. I, uh, this is like a, a two-pound book. I'm already getting tired. <laughs> there was a, a Mr. Universe that decided that he was going to try this because he heard that she, this little girl, had held this Bible up for 18 minutes. Or for 30 minutes, and uh, and so he held that very same Bible that she had in her hands. He held that up, and guess how long uh, he, he uh, how long it took him before he, he dropped it? Eight minutes. <laughs> Impressive, but not 30. And he's a Mr. Universe. The guy's a bodybuilder. On the, another occasion, Ellen White went into vision. People held up candles and mirrors to see if she was breathing, and they found that she didn't. One guy, um, he was a medical professional. And he had heard that people thought she was a prophet. And he was like, absolutely not. She's not a prophet. And he remembered this test of the prophet um, from Daniel, that, that uh, Daniel stopped breathing. And so he, he went up and he, he checked her breathing to see if she was still breathing. And he, he turned pale, uh, ran off the platform out of the room, shouting, she's not breathing. Because he realized what that might mean. Ellen White's gifts seemed to match the evidences and over and over again, um, you can find um, testimony, people who were in the room. Many of those testimonies were from people who wanted to prove that she wasn't a prophet. And, and yet they find that she matches what the Bible's description was. In Revelation 12, 17, it says, The dragon was angry, wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And who are the remnants? Those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear that the, the gift of prophecy, all the gifts of the Spirit, but specifically the gift of prophecy, would re-emerge in God's people as they keep the commandments of God and follow Him in the mission to take the gospel to the world. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us if we see this in history. It shouldn't make us go, oh, that's scary or that's weird. We should say, oh, that's what the Bible predicted. That makes perfect sense. Now there's one more thing that I want you to think about as you think about this remnant group as a whole. 
And it's something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. Therefore, by their, what? How will you know them? By the fruits. You don't get good fruit from a bad tree or bad fruit from a good tree. That's the Bible principle. You reap what you sow. When you plant something, you're going to get the fruit of what you plant. And so, if this group of people are truly following the Lamb, then we should see fruits of following the Lamb, right? First of all, we need to produce the right message. Revelation 14, 6-7 describes the message of this last group of, of people in our history. Describes it by saying about this angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the seas, and the springs of waters. And I just want to say, this is, this is the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. For years and years and years, if you drove by a Seventh-day Adventist church, the sign would have a globe with three angels on that globe. Because it's the whole point of why we believe that God put us on this world. To take the three angels' messages to the world. Fear God. Give honor to Him. The one who created all things. Judgment is here. And as a result of this call to take the gospel to the world, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, the Seventh-day Adventist church is one of the largest missionary movements of any single religious entity anywhere in the world. In fact, 80 times more missionaries from the Seventh-day Adventist Church than any other one uh, group in all of the world. Not twice as many, not five times as many, 80 times as many people. In the 1990s, we became aware that there's this, this um, section of the earth, the 1040 window we call it, and, and it's a section of the earth that has the greatest poverty in all of the world. And it has the least knowledge of God. The majority of people there are either atheist, or else Muslim, or else Hindu or Buddhist. They don't know the name of Jesus. And so the Seventh-day Adventist Church started marching into the 1040 window to take the gospel there. Uh, Adventist World Radio strategically places um, radio stations and, and delivers shortwave radio to people who can't get a missionary presence because their government would kill the missionary. But they hear the message from over the airwaves. Hope Channel and 3ABN provide um, international uh, TV broadcasting of the Three Angels messages and so many other good Christian messages. But you also have missionaries who go in strategically into places that they, they shouldn't be, like my sister and her, her husband, who are in North Africa, in a nation that's 99 plus percent Muslim, and that uh, if they knew that their purpose was to uh, take the gospel to the Muslim community and start a church, then that nation would, would eject them quickly, or else cause some other problem with their lives. In the, uh, in the 2000s, we started to recognize the trend that the whole world was recognizing, and that's that, that people were moving everywhere in the world, moving away from the country into the cities. Except for right now, it's changed a little bit. People are moving to North Idaho because they wanted to get out of the city, but that's a different story. But we started to recognize that the cities were growing, growing, growing. Young people were moving to the cities, and now we have cities of 10, 20, 30, 40 million people. Cities like Mexico City and, and other places in Asia that have so much need because people are packed so tightly and the resources are so scarce. And so we started uh, an initiative called Mission, uh, Mission to the Cities. Why do Adventists focus so much on the unchurched world, the unchristian world? Because the Bible says that God's people at the end of time have a mission to take the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And we want to do that. 
Also, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has produced one of the biggest private healthcare systems in the world, including the world-famous Loma Linda Hospital, where proton treatment was developed first for treating cancers, and, and also where the first, um, the first baby heart transplants in the world were done, leading medical care. Why? Because the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a church that recognizes that God has designed our bodies, and it's a beautiful thing, and He cares about our health. And so, between hospitals and sanitariums all throughout the world, other medical um, systems and professionals, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the largest network of medical professionals um, outside a public system. Also, the Last Day Movement is providing a humanitarian relief in more than 119 countries, including uh, the um, Adventist Development and Relief Agency, and a bunch of other uh, more uh, startup, you might call them, humanitarian efforts. I have a friend who, in his his, uh, he did a year-long missionary trip to the Philippines, and there's a, a a little group up there in the mountains, a place where just a little bit farther in, the military won't even go because there's still headhunters, there there's still cannibals there, right? So so they're up there in the mountains, and this this group actually happened to be my cousins. Just happened to be. But anyway, they, they're up there, Kent and Leanna George, and they started this mission. They've got a hospital up there. She's a nurse. Uh, he was a pastor before he became a missionary, and he started a school. Um, they translated the Bible into their language, uh, something that they just recently did. And they've been, for the last 30 years, training, growing a church there and training missionaries to go into the tribes that the military won't even go to farther into the, into the woods, into the mountains there. Well, they, they keep having this problem. Every year, there's a, a switch in the, uh, in, in the weather. You get the rainy season and the dry season. And, and they, they have one part of the year where they can't get electricity from their solar panels because of the rain. And another part of the year where um, they, uh, you know, they, the solar panels work, but there's no water. And so um, he, my friend, who was there for a little while, helped them to get a uh, hydro plant there so they can have electricity in the rainy season and and uh, some more electric panels so they can have more reliable electricity in the dry season. He helped, he and his brother helped build a plane, a plane that can, can drop from a thousand feet, like completely lose um, any lift and just fall from a thousand feet and land in a, a really small area. And it's got huge, really big airfoils on it so you can punch the, the throttle and take off in, in like three or four hundred feet. It's just incredible how quickly this thing is off. And they did that because they needed to get in and out for medical reasons, trying to, to save people who were um, in a medical crisis farther into the, into the mountains. This is, this is the message. Why? Why is it that it matters humanitarian relief? Because God cares about people. Jesus spent more time healing and caring for people than he did preaching the message. And I think those things must go together in a group of people that follow the land wherever he goes. Most importantly, this movement has produced millions of vibrant Christians. Christians from every imaginable walk of life, working together to prepare the world for Jesus' return. I'm not saying that everybody in the Adventist church is perfect. Just look to your left and right and you'll notice that they're not. <laughs> but the, the, the beauty of the story is that this people at the end of time are redeemed. Redeemed from among men. Redeemed by Jesus Christ. And most importantly, they're, they're getting the world ready for the return of Jesus. 
Jesus is coming soon is the message that, that God's people at the end of time need to have. So I mentioned that, that we're going to have the, the happiness for life. Have, deacons, have you, have you gotten that? We have that? Okay, good. So um, when, we, when we exit, just grab one of those um, from somebody that's standing there at the door and take it home. If, if you find that it's beautiful and it enriches your life and it follows the Bible, please study the Bible and make sure it is so. But if you find that it follows the Bible, then add that to your library and enjoy it. And if you find that it doesn't, um, just forget everything that I said and then tell me, look, this isn't matching up with the Bible. And, uh, and then you can throw it out. But I want to take it just to one other, one other uh, perspective. Because we're not just talking about some lady who lived a while back. The Bible says that God will pour out his spirit on the church. It's not just about Ellen White. It's about you and me. What has God given you? What gift has he given you? And you, you might say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher, I'm not really an upfront kind of person. So that's, that's not my thing. He hasn't given me gifts. I don't sing, I don't play an instrument, so that's not my thing. Um, but that's, that's not what the Bible describes these gifts as. Have you heard of the, the lady named, um, oh, I just forgot her name, in Philippi. Is it Lydia? I think it's Lydia. Paul comes to Western Europe. For the first time, he crosses over and, and ends up in Greece, in Macedonia, a, a little city named Philippi, a big city at the time probably. And, and this lady named Lydia ends up being one of the ladies that, that he hangs out with and, and accepts Jesus. And you know what the Bible says Lydia did? She invited Paul and all of his company, which might have been like 10 or 15 people, she invited all, Paul and all of his friends to come and live with her at her house. While he was there doing missionary work, she hosted them. And because of her hospitality, a church was raised up in Philippi, and Christian history suggests that, that Lydia's house became the first church in Philippi. And because of her hospitality, a church was able to thrive long after Paul left. Hospitality is a fantastic gift. Do you like people? Do you like cooking? And that is one of the most powerful things that you can do for God's kingdom, is to be a hospitable host. But, but there's all kinds of other things. Um, are you an engineer like my friend who likes to, to build things? Maybe God wants you to do something to help the world that's not up front. That isn't about meeting people and cooking meals or whatever. Maybe God wants you to use the gifts, the talents, the skills, the passions that you have in order to bless God's kingdom. And I would like to suggest there is no limit to what God can do if you give yourself to him and say, I'm yours, God. What do you want? Where do you want me to go? What's your gift? What's your passion? How is God wanting you to use it? There's a church, just as an example, that, that's up in Canada, Seventh-day Adventist Church, where a bunch of people said, we would like to do something for God. And so some mechanics said, let's do once a month an oil change for ladies that are you know, single moms. So once a month, they started an oil change system. They advertised it, people came, a few cars came in, a few more cars came the next time. And, and after a couple of years, um, they, they were not just changing oil, they found that there's some ladies car was really broken down, so they helped her, they helped her repair it. And, uh, and then some other lady, her car was too broken down to, to fix, and so they found the car for her and gave it to her in the church, um, and fixed it up and gave it to her. And when the church builds a new church, uh, because they were a growing church, a church that's active is a church that's growing, and, and as a growing church, they, they built a new church and decided that they needed to empower this, this mechanics ministry. And so they built a car garage in the corner of their parking lot. 
And, uh, and, and now they have a, an active ministry. Every month they're giving away a car or two. People donate cars and they fix them up. Um, places nearby, like AutoZones, will donate parts to re uh, replace them. Uh, mechanics volunteer their time. And that ministry has done so much in that community, so much that has allowed people to turn and look and see Jesus and see the gospel and be excited and hopeful that Jesus is coming again. So I, I don't know what your gift is. I don't know what your passion is. I don't know what your skills are. But God has said, I want to use you. I want to sing a song as we close, uh, a hymn that we're going to